0: All right, Romans 12, 1 and 2. pleasing and perfect will let us pray father we come and we thank you for all that you do for us we pray that um you remove all distractions internal and external from us right now father And allow us to solely focus upon you we pray that it is your words that are spoken to your children right now and not mine we pray that you are honored and glorified to the fullest because that's what you deserve we thank you for the opportunity to be here As you pour out your grace and mercy upon us, we thank you for your love and everything that you do for us. We praise in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. I'm actually going to read you a different translation. Um, One that I think is a little more in line with the way the Greek is actually written out. I'd like to say that I wrote this myself, but I can't take that kind of credit. But when I did look at it and I compared the two, I was like, if I was to translate, this would probably be pretty close to what I would say. So listen to the differences in it. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Therefore. I exhort you, brothers and sisters. By the mercies of God to present your bodies as a sacrifice. Living. Holy. And pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may test and approve. What is the will of God? What is good and well pleasing and perfect? So it's interesting that I call this living worship and I did. It's, it's amazing the way when you work through things, how they morph and kind of modify on you and things start to change. And, and I really believe that I was going to come here and talk about like living sacrifices and living worship. And, and, I come to find, and I come to find a few things just to be a tad different. And what we're going to do in this is define a lot of words. It's almost going to be like school. Right, we're going to define a lot of words, which is the way I preach a lot of times anyways, right? Because I think definition, we we think we know what things mean, but do we ever really know what things mean? Especially when we're looking at them biblically, right? Because we can have a world understanding of what something might look like. But when we put it in context of scripture, sometimes words change from the way that we believe that we understood them prior. And so the question I want to ask you to start, though, is... Do we really know what it looks like to follow Christ? Like, really know. Like, do we really know what it looks like to follow Christ? Do we really know what it looks like to be a believer? Do we know what it looks like to be a disciple Like, do these words interchange with each other in your minds, or are they different? When you think of what a disciple is, do you think of yourself? Would they match what the Apostle Paul says? Or what Jesus says? Would they match what Scripture shows? Would it match the way the Apostles lived before or after the Spirit came? I also wonder if we've ever really listened to the things that Jesus says about being his follower. In Mark 10, a rich man comes to Jesus and asks, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, Sell everything you have and give to the poor. You will have treasures in heaven. Then come follow me. In Luke 9, Jesus has three men come to him, and the first one says that he will follow Jesus wherever he goes. Jesus says that following him may cost him his comforts and his security. Because the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. In essence, following Jesus may mean homelessness. Jesus tells the second man to follow him, and the man responds with first, let me go bury my father. Jesus replies, let the dead bury their own. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Jesus was telling him that he has a mission more important than burying his own father. The third man sounds like he is okay with both of these requirements. But he wants to go home and say goodbye to his family first. And Jesus says, whoever puts his hand on the plow and looks back, Is not fit for the kingdom. Christ is saying. That when we begin our work. We are to leave everything behind. Leave everything. Behind. And not be concerned with it. In Luke 9. Jesus also says to deny yourself. Pick up your cross. And follow him. Because he who loses his life. Will find it. And he who finds his life. We'll lose it. So I need everyone to make a single file line. We're all going to go get crosses in the back. Torture devices. That we need to pick up. So that we can follow Jesus. I'm not telling everybody to become a monastery monk. But what I am saying. That Christ is asking us. Is that in order to follow him. There can be nothing. Nothing. More important. Than him. And the work he has called us to. Each of these people that I just spoke about. Were being challenged to relinquish. The things they held closest to their hearts. I love this. Jesus leads by example. He puts everything on the line for us. The same way he's asking us to do. He did himself. Jesus lived out. This life all the way to the grave, even when he had the, the opportunity to stop it, he didn't. So Jesus died. Big deal. Was Jesus death just another man dying on the cross? Or was it something more? One of the interesting things before we get into this text that I want you guys to, to wrestle with, too, um, Some of us may try to deny the things that I'm saying. Some of us may try to justify the way we live. To disprove or disagree with what I'm saying. But I'm being extreme in in what I'm trying to show you. To to show you what it would really look like. Fully lived out. Because parts of what I'm going to say do challenge at the core what we call comfort and security but why would we want that well paul starts this text with a therefore therefore right if anytime you see a therefore if you know the english language it's a connecting point back to something that had come prior right So that therefore here at the break of of chapter 12, verse 1, is trying to tell you to look back at something has come before. Now, scholars all argue about what Paul's actually getting at. Is he talking about the doxology at the end of chapter 11 that praises God and sings about his goodness and his mercy? Is he talking about chapters 9 to 11? And when God starts telling you, I have mercy on whom I choose to have mercy on. What is it for the pot to to ask the master, why did you make me this way? Or is Paul talking about everything that has come before all the way back to verse one, chapter one. I'm going to argue. He's talking about all the way back to chapter one. Why? Why? Because what follows is because of the mercies of God. Now, I don't know about you. But I get real excited when I start thinking about the places that God has brought me from in order to be where I am today. Right. And have you you ever wrestled with the question like, you know what God has saved you from? Like, do we know, like in our heart of heart, not like intellectually, I know God saved me from the pit of hell. But know in your heart of hearts that if Jesus didn't do what he had done, what you were destined for. Right, because at the end of the day, by default, everyone who's living in the world has a location they're going. Everyone, by default, scripture tells us all deserve hell. And when we think about that, do we get a little tug in our heart, a little excited about what God has possibly saved us from when we hear about the horrors of hell? Or total separation from God? Just watching people live in the world, not knowing who God is and having no hope of anything being better than what they're experiencing right now in this earth. No hope for a better life. And so Paul starts this text with therefore. By the mercies of God. By the mercies of God. What are the mercies of God in your life? Can you look back in your life and see the struggles that you've had that God has brought you through? Can you see, like when I was praying, like the times that we don't feel God is there, God is picking us up. I know it's not theological and I know it's not reformed to think this way, but I love the footprints prayer when when the guy's like, why did you leave? There's only one set, and God's like, what are you talking about? I carried you at that time. Right, I carried you when you felt like you were at your bottom, when there was nothing left for you. I was holding you in my arms, getting you to where you had to go. Right? Can we look back and see what God has brought us through to be where we are? Paul's going to reference it in Romans, and Paul's going to talk about the 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 decay of humanity and the and the and the the depravity of our minds and the, and the places that we were allowing ourselves to go to willfully and wanting to be around more people who lived that same way. But there was no hope for us. That God gave us, that we wanted it so bad, God gave us over to a depraved mind. Imagine being the parent. Is that what you want? Yeah, go ahead. Call me when you're done. I'm not going to fight you. I'm not going to stop you. Handle it. That's the same thing we do with addicts all the time. You want to go? Go. See you when you get back. If you make it back. If. Because there's not even a guarantee. And as they're running over there to go, yeah, I get to go. They're yelling, YOLO, 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 YOLO. I'm like, right, remember that. Because you only die once too. It's the truth. But Paul is going to create this letter to the Romans. And he's going to start talking about, yes, as humanity was depraved. Here's what he said. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. And sometimes I want to think, what are you talking about? I serve God. I seek him. But the question I have to ask is, do I really? Do I really seek God? There is no one who does good, not even one. Because I believe that my actions are good actions. But really, a lot of times they're selfish actions. They just want for the betterment of me, nobody else. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And they, the way of, the, of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. When I willfully sin, do I, am I scared of God? Do I have fear for, of Him? Because if I did... I might not be doing what I'm doing. I might not participate in some things if I fear God. I know that like there's some kids that I remember talking with one time that like, I can't do that. Why? It's because I'll get in trouble with my parents. I, I ain't getting in trouble. I fear them. Not an unhealthy fear, but a healthy fear. Like I fear my parents. I don't want to disappoint. I don't want to upset them. But there's things that I do that I'll say are righteous, and they're really not. But Paul then tells the Romans, but there's a way. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. For us who believed in him, who raised our Lord from the dead, He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. I don't know about you guys, but I get excited about it. Look, check this out. So... Open Door was working through this reading program called Immerse, right? And what we were doing was we would start in one, uh, basically there were six books that Immerse had set up and you would basically read every week a section of the book, right? We would break every book up into 16 weeks and we would come together and we would talk about what we saw, the things God was doing, right? And we had these questions every week that we would ask, A lot of my congregation has never read the Bible before, so they don't know what that even looks like. So this was a good thing for us because everyone got through the Old Testament. We're in Messiah now, so we're in the new, right? But I remember sitting there and as we're watching, reading about what God is, uh, what the Israelites are doing in in the stories, ISIS get mad and be like, man, God just needs to wipe these fools off the planet. Right? A Cosmic spanking, all of them. And he would at times, right? There'd be times where they would have did something and 3,000 of them died. A plague came and a bunch of them died, right? I'm like, man, that's not good enough, God. You need to deal with them even more. And I would say that, like, it's frustrating to watch the way they treat God. Because what was happening was that I was seeing a reflection of self in the text. But thank God that he didn't do that to them because the fear is that maybe he would have did that to me too. I might get a cosmic spanking. Thank God God is slow to anger. Thank God. So when, when Paul says, by the, because of the mercies of grace, right? Because of the mercies of, of, of God, present your body as a sacrifice. Present your body. Why wouldn't you want to present everything about you to God and say, God, I am here for you to use as you see fit. Take me wherever you want me to go. Do with me whatever you want me to do. The things that I dreamed about and the things that I wanted no longer exist. Why? Because I have died to self and I live for you today. I have died to self. Because what I have today is greater than anything I could ever. What I have today because of you is greater than anything I could ever give myself. Present your body as a sacrifice, right? What's a sacrifice? A sacrifice is giving up something that you love for something else. Why I talked about our dreams and our desires. Because what is God calling? God has put a call on each and every single one of our lives? And have we've lived into the call that God has given us? Or have we made excuses for why we can't do that? Oh, I'm married with kids now. I can't move, you know, to Africa. And become a missionary. I can't move to Asia. I can't move to Stockton. Or Modesto. Or even Rapona. And share the gospel with people. I can't even live in the neighborhood I live in right now. And share Jesus in my community. Because I'm afraid that I might be uh, outcasted. Or or kicked out. Or cancelled or fired from my job. My wife always says, the "One thing, the two things you don't talk about with people are politics and religion." I'm like, "Why not? I need to know who's on my team." But do we live into the call that God has given us? Because we know where he has brought us from and who he is and what he can do? That's why I asked the question earlier, like, do we really know what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus? Do we really know? And yes, I did say I will be extreme in these examples, right? But can we give up the things that we think we want for him? And people will say, well, God gave me these dreams and these hopes and these desires. Did he? Well, yeah, if he didn't give them to me, I wouldn't have them. Maybe. But maybe not, too. And so he says, present yourself as a sacrifice for three reasons, right? Three adjectives living. So do you live for Jesus? Do you live for him? Every waking moment, every step, every movement, everything you do is about him. Right? This is the sacrifice piece. I'm living for him. Is it holy? Pure? Without sin? Righteous? Or do I hold anger in my heart for people? Animosity. It's not pure. Do I look at people and think something about them because of the way they look or where they came from or how they dress or the way they talk? Is it acceptable? I said, does it glorify God? God. Does it glorify him? I mean, I would think anything holy is acceptable, but then I had to figure out what what Paul was getting at. Does it glorify God in what you're getting ready to do? Because we'll deceive ourselves at times and tell ourselves that what we're doing is right, but it doesn't glorify God in doing it. Like, do we treat people as neighbors? Like biblical neighbors, not neighbors that live next door to us, but biblical neighbors. Is that how we treat people? That we're on the side of the road, that we're the one who's going to run over, throw them on our donkey and make sure that they're healed. Or we just want to leave them there. I don't know why that person's there, but it ain't my problem. Because God calls us to so much more. And then it says, "Which is your reasonable service?" As the text we read on on the screen here, it says spiritual worship. But reasonable has to do with the word logic. Like, is it logical to do what you're doing? And that's a tricky word because sometimes we think logical means safety of self, preservation. But if we're being sacrificial then does it really mean preservation? I remember being told, God doesn't call us to run into the fire. No, he does call us to run into the fire. That's the thing about God. Right? God calls us to be willing to put our life on the line to save the other man. But we'll hear logical and think, no, it means that I need to be okay because I have kids and a wife that need to be taken care of. hopefully if it's you in that fire, somebody else isn't thinking that same way. That's not to guilt anybody. That's just the reality of it. Who are you really? Right. That's the other word for reasonable is like getting down to brass tacks on who you are. You're a child of God. It was funny. There's this this, uh, there's church called Soma Church. They're out of Seattle and they plant churches all over all over the the United States. And, and he does this thing where he goes at the people and he says, hi, who are you? And he shakes their hand. They say, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm Bill. Hey, Bill. Okay. Who are you, Bill? Oh, I'm a a concrete salesman. I didn't ask you what you do. Who are you? Oh, I'm a a father. No, I didn't ask you, you know, who are you? And he'd get like five or six questions in with most people. And finally somebody would say, I'm a child of God. He said, why did it take you so long to get there? If we're getting into brass tacks about who we are, that should be the first thing that we want to tell people is we're children of God. But we want to identify ourselves with all these other things. Why? Do those things give validity to who we are in the world? Because what should give validity to who we are is the power of Jesus Christ in our life who went to the cross and died for us. That should be the first thing we tell. Man, I want to tell people I'm a child of God before I tell them my name. A reasonable service. You could use the word worship for service. But what's worship? Some would argue this is worship. Some would say the music we sing. But worship is what are we doing in our daily life and our devotion to our God? Where is my time and my money being spent? Always trips me out, right? I mean, they didn't teach it in seven days, but they might as well say, hey, look, when you preach a sermon on Sunday mornings, you got an hour because everybody got to get to lunch. They got to watch football. They got to do this. They got to do that. Isn't it about Jesus? Or not? You guys have heard the arguments from your kids. Oh, the kids got school tomorrow. I got to make sure they're ready for bed and and everything. No, man, get your hiney to church. It's about Jesus today. It's a reasonable worship. But... Do not be conformed to this present world. Who sets the standard for how you live? Social media? CNN? Fox? Do they set the standard? Whatever mob is running around right now? Our government? And the crazy laws they sometimes make. Who? Because that's where we get conformed, right? When we start paying attention to all these other things that have nothing to do with who we are, right? Well who are we? We're children of God. So why am I listening to uh, social media to tell me what a woman should look like? Right? Right? latest thing now is every woman wants to be a boss. But they want a traditional man who's going to open the door and pay for stuff. But they want to be a boss. They don't want to be a traditional woman. Right? I make my own money. But you want him to do his job, but you don't want to do yours. Or we get mad and we want to defund the police. And then we get mad when crime is everywhere. And then we want to blame the police. Right? Because social media makes this idea cool. Or we get afraid of being canceled. I know you guys are a little older, so I'll tell you what canceled is. (laughs) Being canceled is when they take all your stuff off. Right? When everybody starts to attack you. And tell you why you're a bad person. It happens to celebrities when they speak out about certain things. They get canceled. And now they can't get on any shows or do anything positive. And we get in that same place too. We get fearful of being canceled ourselves. But why? Again, do we not know the mercies of God? Do we not know where God has brought us from and what he's bringing us to? And if I get canceled, who cares? Because what I got awaiting for me is way better than that. What shapes the way you think? Is it even the 1950, 1960 lifestyle that some of us come from and the, and the values and the morals of those days? He says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed. This is a metamorphosis word, right? Like, and, and so this is like the, the, the caterpillar turning into a butterfly type of change. right. Think about that. Caterpillar, butterfly. How many butterflies do you think wish they were caterpillars again? Right. Think about it. Caterpillar is in dirt, eating leaves and like moving probably like this. You got the butterfly out there like, "Ah, what's up? Let's go flying all over the place. Beautiful. Right. You might mix up a caterpillar with a maggot and smash it. Right in my mind, they all come from the same area. They're little worms, but then when it comes a butterfly, I, there's a guy that calls me from jail uh, pretty regularly right now, and he's going to be coming to my homes when he gets released. And I know his wife; she's in recovery with me. And uh, he said, "You know what's crazy?" I read this article about the the caterpillar becoming a butterfly. He says, do you know that what they have known or learned about that is the the caterpillar experiences physical transformational pain in the cocoon? I went, what? He goes, yes, they said there is physical transformational pain. When you think about being this little worm and all of a sudden these big old wings start sprouting out, right? And the body shape changes. He goes, there's physical adaptation pain that they experience. And I went, that makes a lot of sense. Because there's a lot of pain that some of us have to experience when we start to make some of these changes. Because we don't become everybody's cup of tea after a while. Not everybody wants to be around to hear about Jesus. Not everybody wants that righteous behavior in front of them because it's convicting to see. In recovery, we say it's about attraction rather than promotion. Serving Jesus is attractive to people. And they just know that there's something different about you that they don't experience in their everyday life because you glow with Jesus when he really permeates through your skin. You guys remember my story about my local drug dealer who was living across the street and I come knocking. I'm handing out bread one Sunday after church. I'm knocking on doors, giving bread out. He comes to the door. He's all like leaned like this. I said, hey, brother, I got some bread. Would you like some bread? He's like, I love bread. Take two. He's like, but there's something different about you. What's different? I said, oh, man, I got you. I serve the most high God. and He tells me to love you the way he's loved me. And he's like, well, I do do that Jesus stuff, but I love bread. They were there the day Open Door had their first worship service. And every time I'd go to his house and hang out in the garage, he would shut down shop on selling drugs while I was there. And when his mother-in-law died, he came running to my door to help her at seven o'clock in the morning. He didn't know what to do with her. He's all screaming on the floor, rolling around like a little kid, banging on the ground. I'm over here doing chest pumps on her because she's having congestive heart failure. And I'm the one that's doing CPR on her. He can't even control. I'm like, man, you're supposed to be the, the tough gangster drug dealer, bro. Like, what are you doing? And I'm the one doing chest compressions while trying to save her. But be transformed. How do you Be transformed. I think there's four ways that we do this. First one is you got to read God's word. In recovery, I tell guys, your brain is your enemy. The way you think is faulty. You need to put new information in it. And the way you put new information in it is you take in new information. You need to read the recovery book. So here, we need to be reading God's word. God needs to be what sets the standard for us. God is the standard. So we need to be in his word. Right? I teach the guys that we read to memorize, we memorize to internalize, and we internalize to apply it. Read to memorize, memorize to internalize, internalize to apply it. Can we spout scripture when needed to help somebody to give hope or understanding to a situation when they think God hates them? doesn't want them around when they blame God for their life being what it is. Because when we can read to memorize it, it becomes a part of who we are. I mean, everywhere in scripture, it says to graph, this, these words on your heart, right? Meditate on them day and night. Like, do we read to meditate on God's word? Because it's what gives us the foundation for how we live. The second thing we need to do is have fellowship. We need to be around like-minded people. People who are trying to do the same thing. Why? Because it gets lonely out there when you're the only one out there trying to tell people about Jesus. Even Jesus had a fellowship. He had 12 guys around him. The only time he went off alone was when he needed to go pray. You can all have your own little prayer, prayer closets in your house, but we need fellowship. We need to be around brothers and sisters who are trying to do the same job as us. Why? So we can encourage each other, so we can hold each other up. And when resources are needed, we can move in with them and help out too. The third thing is we need spiritual authority, accountability. Yes, the pastor's nice, but you only see him on Sundays for an hour and a half. How many of us are being discipled? How many of us have people speaking into our lives and walking with us and some, some uh, another man or woman of God that we can call and say, here's what's going on with my kids. I don't know what to do. Please pray with me and help me. Iron sharpens iron. scripture say that. It says that we're not to be worried about the people on the outside judging them. We are to hold each other accountable within this room. We hold each other accountable. So when you're messing up, I have a right to tell you you're messing up. Where do we do that? Again, counsel is nice, but we very rarely ever see them in our daily life. Can we help each other? And the fourth, I think, is the most important. Holy Spirit. Scripture says that when we profess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and Savior, the Spirit comes upon us. Do we really believe that the spirit dwells within us the way we live our life? Because I don't know about you, but if I truly believe that the spirit dwells within me, that I'm not going to participate in the unholy, the unrighteous, right? The mean, decrepit behaviors that I would participate in if I didn't know Jesus. Nor would I try to justify these bad behaviors and make them sound like they're Acceptable Christian behaviors. Why? Because if I believe the spirit dwells within me, I think he's looking at the same things I'm looking at. He's being hands with me if I'm hurting people. Hmm. Mm-hmm. But why does this matter? It says because. When we have a renewing of the mind, we may test and approve what is the will of God. What is good and well-pleasing and perfect. How many of us run around going, man, I don't know if this is the will of God for me to do right here. Should I do this or not? Do you ever wrestle with, is this the voice of God telling me to do this? Or is this the devil telling me to do this, right? Is God really trying to move me into a different direction? Or is the the enemy trying to distract me from what I'm supposed to be doing? When we have a renewed mind, we no longer have that fight. Why? Because we know how to test and approve it. Because we become one with the Father. And we know how to connect to him to know What is he truly trying to do? That's why I tell people man, we need to read scripture in such a way that we know God, we know him. How many people in your life, when they call you and you pick up the phone they don 't have to say who they are you don 't have to look at it as soon as you hear their voice, you know exactly who it is and exactly how they talk and exactly the things they say and exactly the personality they have and nobody can tell you that somebody is somebody else because you know them you know them. are we at that place with God when the devil was trying to was trying to uh, Confuse Jesus and tempt him to do things. The devil couldn't do it because Jesus knows God. There was no way it was going to work. Do we know God? And this is how we approve his will. Because we know the things that he says. We know the things that he did. Check this out. What do you think Abraham did? Right. Talk about extreme. Right. Abraham. God came to him and said, hey, I know you love your son, but I need you to kill him. Take him up to the mountaintop. And shank him. It doesn't say if Abraham wrestled with it, doesn't say, right? it doesn't say nothing. It just says Abraham was obedient. Paul references Abraham for a whole entire chapter talking about he listened to God. Threw the wood on his back, took him up to the mountaintop. Put the wood out Threw the boy on top of the wood. And it says he got to that place where he lifted the knife up and he was getting ready to stab him. And God said, wait. He knew that was the voice of God talking to him because he knew God. Some of us right now are thinking, I would never kill my kid. I don't care if God told me to do it or not. I wouldn't even know if it was God telling me to do it. Because God would never tell me to do that. That's what we're thinking right now. But God has done it. So if he's done it once, why wouldn't he say do it again? He says, I know you love me more than anything now. And then God gave him a lamb to kill in his place. A sacrifice. But this one wasn't living. But it was holy. And it was approved by God. Why does it matter that we understand the mercies of God? Because when we understand, when we the deeper we understand God's mercies in our life, the deeper our obedience becomes to him because we know the things that he calls us to. We know. There is no questioning. There is no doubting anymore. We know. We know. We know so much that God was willing to give his own son. For the ungodly. He leads by example. He does. And do we say oh it's cool for him but I don't got to do that? No, cuz we're supposed to follow. We're supposed to follow. And that's why I ask that question. Do we truly know what it looks like to follow Jesus? Truly. Not just say that we're here because this is what we've been taught and this is what mommy and daddy did. And this is what they showed us. But here, because we truly believe that God is the answer to every problem that exists, that He truly is the Alpha and the Omega in our lives. He is what makes everything good. Let's pray.